0: Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. You know what a WikiHole is. We've all been there. You look up a certain celebrity, to see how tall they are and whether they've said anything cringe about vaccines. Before you know it, you're 10 minutes into reading about something called a toast sandwich. And that's basically what it's like to listen to WikiHole, only funnier. Every episode is a new rabbit hole to explore with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends loaded with unforgettable new information you'll literally never need to know. And that's why it's great. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary workday until the Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at Canva.com. Designed for
2: work. You know, to like the young people going to Club coming and seeing, you know, the shows that exist these days, like, they have no fucking idea who I am. Yeah. And that's so fair because I've never set foot on that stage. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't put out work. So like, how would they know? But that it plagues me a little bit, you know, like I really do think of myself as a comic. Um, and it is like a scary thought to be like, I guess I'm not. Yeah. Um. <laughs>
0: Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse davis Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes, and then discusses how, and more importantly, why they wrote it. This week's guest is Gabe Lehman. With Gabe coming on, I have uh, completed my long-in-the-works, big, terrific trilogy, so named after the comedy show that ran every week in Williamsburg for seven years. First, I had Max Silvestri on, then Ed had Jenny Slate, and now Gabe Lehman, the third host. Along with Comedy Death Ray in LA, Big Terrific was the show that made me fall back in love with going to see live stand-up comedy. Besides the hosts being so funny, they just sort of created such a welcoming environment and it felt like the type of space I wanted to see comedy performed in. Like Jenny and Max, Gabe moved to LA for sunshine and tremendous Hollywood success. He has since written for such shows as Pen15, Broad City, Transparent, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and Kroll Show. Most recently, Gabe is the co-creator of Q-Force, Netflix's new animated series about a team of queer spies. Uh, It is really funny, and it was worked on by a lot of comedy writers and comedians that I like quite a bit and find also quite funny. Uh, We're going to play a clip and discuss a joke from the third episode of the season, but just so you have a little bit more context for who the characters are and the tone, I'm first going to play a different clip from the first episode. Then Gabe and I will talk a little bit, then the joke clip then more talking etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera, etc 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 so here is Gabe Lehman
3: all right squad assemble what's up man i'll tell you what's up it's the best day of the month for the best spies in the world that's right people i'm talking check in day a first standing 5 foot 8 weighing in at I want to say a strong 165. Bitch, I'm a dense 198, and I worked hard for every pound. Take it away, Agent Deb. Thank you very much. So I've been thinking, should our squad ever work a mission... Which we will, because we're the best. Which we will, because we're the best. How are we going to get there? If you ask me, what this scrappy little spy squad needs is... a super high-tech, blow-your-fucking-mind-out-your-ass spy car. Oh, my God, yes! (laughs) Wow! That looks sturdy. Because it fucking is. The body is a 2006 Subaru Outback, and on the inside, it can drive, it can fly. Plus, it's preloaded with Tracy Chapman's entire discography, so you know it's a fast car. Who's Tracy Chapman? I think he's a senator. Deb, you're a fucking genius. And I'm a fucking genius for recruiting you. Say it again. No time. Too excited. Genius number two, you're up. It's the Duchess of the Hack Pack. You. Our very own Dongle Goblin. That one's fine. I'm talking about Agent Stat, people. Show me what you got. I found that Malaysian plane everyone was looking for way back when. What? Oh my god, what are you saying? How did you even think to look there? Now, it's a check-in time for our master of disguises. Wait. Has anyone seen Twink? Would you like some chamomile love for your nerves? Thank you, Grandma Rose. Wait a minute, Grandma Rose is dead! Trampled to death 10 Black Fridays ago!
4: Relax, boo-boo, it's me! Check-in day realness, bitch!
3: I mean, boss. But also bitch, because I love you, bitch. Twink, (laughs) that was amazing and very triggering. As always, you guys have blown me away with your check-ins. Now, to close out check-in day with a bang, your boss, who'd never forget to floss, the best damn spy in the whole frickin' world, give it up for me! Mm. I added 3.6 centimeters to my vertical leap. That was my check-in. Why is that paper towel dispenser texting us? Oh, my God, this is it! The agency's taking notice of our progress, and we're about to get our first case! They're actually cutting our budget again another 15%. And now they're saying I have to reimburse them for this paper. Kill me.
2: Oh, I forgot to tell you, I topped the printer out of fuel. That was going to be next month's check in.
0: So I am here with Gabe Liebman. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm already having a blast.
0: <laughs> already, just from the introduction <laughs> alone. Um, before we get into the specific joke, I feel like we should provide just some context for those who haven't watched the show yet. From what I understood, a while ago, Sean Hayes had the idea of just doing a gay James Bond. That's sort of that those three words next to each other. And I'll have some questions throughout, but can you walk me through how that idea came to you, how it became the version of that idea that now exists on Netflix?
2: Yeah, so you're exactly right. Um, Sean Hayes and his uh, producing partner, Todd Milliner, they had this tiny seed of an idea, three words, gay James Bond, and they thought there's something here. <laughs> yeah. And they thought um, that could be a really fun part for Sean to get to play in something. Um, and so they started um, meeting with writers, Uh, to see what various people's takes on this might be. And Sean called me in because he was a fan of my standup, which blew my mind. Um, And I like floored it to his office. Um, I I love Sean and I always have. I just think he's one of our best. He's brilliant in every way. Um, And so I went in for like a Hollywood meeting um, and they shared with me, you know, gay James Bond, what do you think? go think yeah. on that for a little bit and come back to us with something. And I came back to them with Q-Force. Like, yeah. basically I came back and was like, it's not gay James Bond.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I've, I was like, I don't think that there would ever be a gay James Bond in, 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 in any real reality. Mm-hmm. Like even if our guy was, had all the trappings of James Bond, if he was that skilled, that hot, that brilliant in that world, he still might not get a shot.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: And that sort of like underdog take on it just seemed so much like richer to me um, and funnier and just felt like, okay, here's a real possibility to tell a story. And then I also was like, we need to do this ensemble style it can't just be like the story of one dude that seems mm-hmm. boring yeah. um so it it became to me it had to be the story of the squad the whole squad and kind of a more i guess mission impossible yeah, yeah. style take on it
0: and then once they um ag- agreed that you'd work together on it you know this you you've obviously you've been writing a variety of shows you've show ran pen 15 and I imagine like you've had development deals along the way of certain ideas that were just yours. But how did you feel about if this was to work out, that this would be a show that you were co creating, which is obviously a different role? Like, what a, beyond, yeah, just sort of what were your feelings about this is gonna be the show that's like, oh, co created by Gabe Lehman, this is gonna be a thing that I'm going to pour a, even more of myself into?
2: I thought it seemed like a cool opportunity. Like, the more I got to know Sean and Todd, and also, Mike Sure is involved. Yeah. He um, is an amazing television creator and was formerly one of my bosses at Brooklyn Nine Nine. So we had a, a relationship, and I knew I knew him um, and what he like brings. And it just seemed like kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to work with a star I'm obsessed with um, and a producer who I know like has it you know Mm. like so it was just a sort of like you need to seize this opportunity um with both hands and just floor it um so yeah it just felt like like an exciting thing it felt like and I'm also a really collaborative person, like even my, you know, from my earliest days in comedy, like I wasn't standing at a mic by myself. I really like working with other people. I think it makes everything richer. So I'm not someone who shies away from collaboration. I I run towards it.
0: Did you have feelings, positive or, or, or negative, about you'd have your name on being an explicitly queer show, opposed to like a show that has gay characters and doing whatever, but a show that is about the idea of queerness in the year that you're doing it you know like I was probably thinking because like I was doing research when doing this and you in on other podcasts you told the story of being on WTF and he goes so gay you know what should we talk about <laughs> he's like I don't know I'm gay like and yeah <laughs> and like obviously there's because there's always pressure from the industry to like oh well he's a gay comedian he should do gay stuff but like and you know, and obviously, that's all different, but I just want to know if you had thoughts about like what it means to embrace doing that as a sort of project.
2: you know, it's it's interesting. Like I've had the opportunity i've I've had the um experiences of being like the only gay person in the room on projects. um, and I've had the experience of writing for straight shows that have queer side characters. Mm-hmm. Um and so, Um, This felt like a really like kind of freeing experience where it's sort of like you don't have to scrap day to day to try and insert that identity into an Mm -hmm. existing thing. Like the whole house is gay. The door is gay. The (laughs) roof is gay, you know? So it's like now just go in the house and make a show. So it felt like really, um, yeah, just kind of freeing. It was almost like, even though this is the queerest, project I've ever like done um the queerness felt like yeah just sort of like the it felt almost background to yeah. the actual writing because it just was there from the start it wasn't going anywhere so I didn't have to make room for it
0: yeah it's like these you wrote these characters and the characters are essentially just speaking how the characters are doing you're not like well what's a what's a gay joke we're gonna have this person say it's just like what would this person say
2: Exactly. And like, okay, now they're in a relationship. What are, you know, like, I don't have to speak up to be like, well, that's not exactly what relationships are like for everybody. You know what I mean? Like, it just felt like, you know, and also my co-writers were queer. Like, it was vast, vast, vast majority of the writers room was some form of LGBTQ plus identity. Um, so it was, there was like a nice sort of shorthand. We like got each other's references. There was not a lot of like educating going yeah. on, which is awesome.
0: Once, once you, in what ways did you feel like you were able to make it a gay bleedman show? Like, obviously it's a collaborative effort, but like, especially when you are like, okay, I'm going to be working on this. I'm going to develop it. Like, were there certain things that you felt were, these are things that I've always wanted to do. This reflects my point of view. And I want to make sure it's there at the sort of very beginning.
2: Yeah. um, Wow. That's a really big question. Like, I think I just like gave myself permission to follow my gut. Like, Mm. especially, you know, um, in choosing the stories, like I was always, always had an audience in mind, but I also was like, you know um, I get to make some choices right now. So I tried to just like, make the choices that made sense to me or delighted me or turned yeah. me on or made me laugh. Um, because I have, like you said, I, I was the showrunner at pen 15, which was an unbelievable opportunity and the funnest thing in the world. But it's also that show is Anna's and Maya's and Sam's. And yeah. I was there as like a sort of like, um, defender of their brains you know like i was there to make sure that theirs that their stuff arrived on screen intact um it, or that's how it that's how i took it yeah you know so um as much as i added to pen 15 i mostly was just trying to protect them whereas on q force it was like you know time you know we wrote 800 alts on every joke I get to choose which ones yeah, go yeah, in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it just like by default became, you know, I was using my gut.
0: Yeah. Um. Once it is agreed that it was going to be on Netflix, I've heard rumors that Netflix gives new creators like a book of like how to make shows for Netflix. Is this, can you confirm this?
2: Or... Oh my God, I would pay for that book. No.
4: Okay.
2: <laughs> it was very much like learn as you go. Um, there's, you know, once your show is done, you do get a bit of an explainer of like (laughs) what flies,
4: Mm -hmm. um,
2: and sort of like how, um, things are measured. Um, it's a very, very, very data driven company. So, you know, like when the show was written and edited and done, and it was like, time to start thinking about what the opening titles are. Mm -hmm. There definitely was like a, an Excel spreadsheet about like, how many people turn off shows during the credits, you know? And it's like, well, I guess we're not going to do credits, <laughs> you know? So it, there's definitely that, but yeah. go walking in. Um, it felt like um, any, any other network. Yeah. It's really when, once the show is about to fly that you're like, Oh, okay. There's a system here
0: um, to, to, I think the other thing to know, I think for the, the joke we'll be talking about is just sort of like who each character, is especially the main characters and sort of why and how they fit into what whatever the the mission of the show is beyond sort of just like you know being a funny show about sort of uh, espionage but um i'm gonna walk through each character and you could talk about you know what decisions were made in terms of like forming who that person ended up being um and this sure. is in order of how they appear in the scene uh so first is mary played by sean hayes
2: Yes, so Mary, and this is true of like every character in the ensemble, I would say, is based on someone Mm. in my life (laughs) Um, because that's like a way of me sort of like grounding it in a reality that at least makes sense to me. So um, Agent Mary, very embarrassingly, is like pretty much based on me. Um, (laughs) And, you know, he's like, he's, he's the squad leader of this ragtag group who are doing something new for the first time. Mm. And he thinks he knows everything and he doesn't. And that felt like me. That felt like me showing up to the writer's room on the first day, being like, I sold a show. I think I know what it is, but I need your guys' help so badly. Um, And, you know, sort of like thinking you can do it and then falling on your face. But you can do it. You just have to get back up. And that felt like, um, so that's me. Yeah, that, that. And and I put a lot of like my my experiences into Agent Mary.
0: Is is that including this sort of the inciting premise of sort of like the dream deferring of like, oh, you have these goals and that this sort of Hollywood note of like, oh, you'll wait eventually your time. And then sort of I think a more modern idea is like we can't wait for our time. Like they're never going to give us opportunities. Do you feel like that was also something that resonated in sort of your career which is obviously very different than being a number one spy
2: (laughs) absolutely like i feel like it became my job to make um a place for myself in hollywood like it you know i felt like i graduated from college as a brilliant um absolutely unstoppable comedy writer but like i didn't have jobs for a really really long time and it took a it took a, a while for me to realize like it's not about me fitting into Hollywood. It's about me being myself and kicking doors down. Um, but it also was very much about me putting together my own squad. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that's just exactly what Agent Mary does. And when I look back, you know, I had a few quote unquote writing jobs um, before my career really took off. But what really happened in the actual, like telling of my life is that the other comedians in my community around me started to pop and I was standing with them and they liked my vibe and they hired me to work with them. So, you know, the first person to give me a cool job was Billy Eichner and then Amy Schumer and then Nick Kroll. Um, and it was all that sort of like community Um, And of course, you know, I collaborate a lot with Jenny Slate, who I started with at the very beginning. And it's like just about these relationships. And it's about seeing each other and each other's worth.
0: Mm -hmm. Next is Stat, voiced by Patty Harrison.
2: Yes. Okay. so Stat also is based on someone (laughs) in my life um, who actually um, wrote on the show. Mm. Um, She's like a very, very funny, very goth, very Internet-y weirdo trans woman who I'm obsessed with, um, who was my colleague at Transparent. Um, She was a writer there. Her name is Chloe Keenan. Um, And she just fucking blows my mind. And she makes me laugh. And all of her references are things I have never heard of. Um, And I think that that's just what makes her really, really special to me. Um, So yeah, I hired her to to write for the show, (laughs) not just for stat, but for everyone. She's brilliant. Um, but yeah, that she was really my touchstone in trying to like add nuance to what could be a really cheesy character, the hacker yeah. girl, you know? Yeah. I
0: mean, I, I, it was something of when I was looking at the writing staff and I looked at that name and I was like, and I looked at her Instagram was like, oh, this is that person.
2: Like, oh, that's her person. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, that, that is her. That is, and I that couldn't is even her. like... I think her handle is Chloe sucks, but it's like all of these different fucking characters that are not exactly, I mean, there's numbers in there, you know? So it's like, definitely. Yeah. She was such a touchstone. Um, And then to cat, I mean, casting Patty was the, just the dream, the, the dream. And it's such a different part for her. She really gets to be so um, subdued compared to her, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, public facing comedy persona, um, which I don't know. It's like it was exciting to watch.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, then next is Twink voiced by Matt Rogers.
2: Yes. Matt Rogers um, is a genius. Um, <laughs> he's my idol. Uh, he was a comedian I was just obsessed with from afar. He was a New Yorker while I was like already in L.A. transplant. So I just sort of like watched him from afar in awe. Um, and hired him to write for the show. Um, his, his sample script is the funniest thing I've ever read in my life. Um, and he was brilliant as a writer. Um, and we were auditioning a lot of really great actual drag queens for the Mm. part of twink. Um, that I guess was my original conception was like, let's find like someone who's really in the drag community. Um, and, the I was facing a lot of like pushback, um, from trying to um hire someone who's like pretty amateur, uh, mm. or you know, like way more up and coming. Um, and you know, we got to the point where we were already doing table reads and we hadn't cast Twink, and so I asked Matt, Can you just read Twink at the table? Um, and it was so mind blowing how yeah. how much it just fit him like a glove. And I mean, after that, like, there was no there was no one who was going to match him.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: Deb voiced by Wanda Sykes.
2: Yeah. So Wanda Sykes is the funniest comedian who's ever lived. Um, And I've always just been in love with her. Um, And even from like, there's the first line I ever wrote for Deb. I, it was always Wanda's voice in my head. I like to have like an actor in mind to like ground things and make dialogue sound real. Um, So I just, you know was like well what if we absolutely hit a grand slam and you know whatever you can get wanda i'm just gonna use wanda in my head um and um yeah in the end she read the scripts and she signed on and she was actually the first um she was the first actor like outside of matt and sean who were so intimately involved she was the first actor to record on the show and it was it was scared the shit out of me. Um, but she was amazing.
0: In, in, in so much as, you know, the show is called Q-Force, it 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 examines queerness in a variety of ways, but also obviously just exists in the world. It, do you feel like those four characters represent something of like what you wanted to convey? Is it more just sort of like, did it, did it start with what are roles of a spy team and how they fill it? What are, or is it, what were sort of like, parts of the community that I wanted to represent and figure out ways that fit in. Like how did that part of it all fit together?
2: Well, on a nuts and bolts level, it was like, there was like, okay, who's on, who's in the squad on mission impossible. Like you have your tech person, you have your gadgets person, you have your disguises person. And then it was like, well, what's the queer version of all of that? Um, so, you know, like, drag is is the master of disguises and like um a a a lesbian who works at pep boys is is going to make your car fly and it just it i just tried to like let my like queer imagination Mm
4: -hmm. fill out
2: the details a little bit um but again i was i was basing all these people on real life and deb like the person and the personality is based on um my dear friend another television writer ali leba um mm-hmm. who actually voice came on to play uh, Wanda's wife Pam on the show. Um and she's just like as much as I think of myself as like a comedy writer version of Agent Mary, she's she's the deb in my life. She's the yeah. person I lean on. She's like my stability and my my guiding light.
0: And the only other though the character is not in the scene, he is reference which is Agent Buck which is sort of the token stroke straight character. Yes. <laughs> uh, voiced by David
2: Harbour. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's our Homer Simpson. Um, <laughs> he's like the our lovable oaf. Um, you know, he starts the series um, being um, assigned to Q-Force to sort of like spy on them and keep an eye on them and keep them in line. He's supposed to be their babysitter, but he's such a fucking dumbass that he... Um, let's them fly a bit, yeah. um, and as impressed by them. And by the end of the season, is like someone you hopefully go from hating and and resenting to you know begrudgingly loving. Um, and that he was really fun to write for. Um, it's very rare for a bunch of queer people to just write um, like a dumbass, idiot, piece of shit, straight guy. <laughs> Um, and I think we had the most fun with him.
0: Was it based on a specific straight guy? Was it based on a specific <laughs> straight guy in your
2: life? I'm not going to name names, but it was based on several. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, you are a stand-up comedian. I'm sure <laughs> there's plenty.
2: I've I've been in some green rooms, my friend.
0: <laughs> um. So the the other thing before uh, we should we'll play the clip right after the sentence, but um, this happens sort of towards the end of an episode. Is there anything you just want to explain before people know what is what these people are happening? So they know a little bit context of the scene um, before we play it.
2: Yeah. So our main squad basically are incredibly skilled secret agents who are not given any cases by the spy agency because they're queer and they're thought of as like, you know, weak um, or non-reliable. So in the pilot, they go rogue and they prove themselves and they're like, I we deserve cases now. And the agency very begrudgingly starts to let them follow the trail of a case that they discovered themselves. Um, And without giving too much away, this is like not the climax of that story arc, but this is a big step along the way. Um, This is their first out of town, real spy mission. And Mm -hmm. they're all having to do something new for the first time. Um, And the shit hits the fan. Um, and they need to race against the clock in a cool kind of action sequence.
3: It's starting! Uh, uh, I gotta get Agent Buck. Do you have to? Pretty
0: sure the AIA has a lot more like him. I know!
3: It's like, who's doing their recruiting? Sean Cody? Right? Fuck, it's not like he'd save us! Oh, we're not him. We're Q Force, and together we are greater than the sum of our parts. The thing about being queer is the fact. Yeah, pride, chosen family. We get it. The bombs, bitch. Let's go. Right. Very good, Marianne.
0: Um, <laughs> in in general, how you know how was the show written? How do you run a room? Describe the what your room was like for this show.
2: Um. The room, like on a staffing level, I tried to um, include as many people of like different backgrounds um, and different ages and different um, identities as possible while still like obviously um, reading their work and being like, you're an awesome writer. You know, it wasn't just sort of like filling seats and and kicking ticking boxes um and i think that we put together an incredible staff um and the way we ran the room was not too like not not very untraditional like we spent the first three weeks of the writer's room arcing out the season saying like this is where it begins this is where it ends these are some major set pieces we're going to hit along the way let's just set up some tent some guide poles and hit them and sort of figuring out each character's like emotional arc for season one um and then you get into the nitty-gritty and you start actually breaking each episode one by one and each writer and also all of the assistants got to take a crack at writing an episode which is very cool of me if I do say so myself. Um, (laughs) And um, then once the first draft of a, of a episode is written, um, it becomes kind of community property. And um, the whole room kind of jumps in to revise the story, but also punch up all the jokes. Um, And that's the kind of life cycle of an episode.
0: Um, Did it, I believe you wrote half of the season pre COVID did did the energy or how did that switch? I mean, like you had your entire career where you're writing in normal energy room and then immediately did it did it change as much as you think Did it change less than you expected?
2: It changed a lot. <laughs> um, and it's like, uh, you know, my biggest like I have a million fears about the show coming out and how it's going <laughs> to how it's going to hit people. But one of cool. the biggest ones is like are people going to watch the show and realize it was written by people who were fucking scared for their lives and um, you know, not in great, you know, like not in great places mentally. Um, That is like a big fear of mine. The pandemic um, hit hard uh, while we were writing episode four. Mm. So four through 10 were all written in isolation. Um, and you know, like, yeah, there is kind of like a way you do things or the way we did things in the olden days, we would sit in sit around a big round table with a whiteboard all together and we would chat and we would work things out. And, you know, like, we just had to scramble and figure it out. What is like the digital equivalent to a whiteboard? Um, now there's a, now there's a bunch of apps. Um, yeah. That are designed specifically for television writers, um, but like we didn't know about them at the time, and we had to kind of figure it out. Um, and yeah, we just we just did it on the fly. Yeah. Um, and there was a, you know, what happened was like the writers' room. Like eventually, we figured out what Zoom was, <laughs> but I think at first, I don't know what the hell we were doing. FaceTime, ten ways, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but having a daily schedule. I think was a real like lifesaver for a lot of people. And I've also like been a part of television shows that crumble and disappear and fall apart for various different reasons. So it became like this really important thing to me as the manager to make sure that that did not happen. Like this was a life and death situation.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: um, and, And like, I needed to make sure that everyone got paid and had food to eat. And, you know, like, that's what it felt like to me. Um, And I just a little bit of like, if we can just show up every day and do this, we'll be happier, but also like, we won't die.
0: Yeah. Um, I've heard that you like or that you notice that in sitcom writers' room, people, when they often pitch jokes for certain characters, they do impressions of that character. Before we <laughs> yeah. move forward, are there any <laughs> characters that you've written for that you'd like to do an impression <laughs> of right now?
2: Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> uh, there's so many. Where do I even start? Um, God, I do a really good Anacon call. I do a really, really good Anna Cone from uh, Ben 15, but I don't know. Like, I think you might need the video, but it's a really physical thing, but Let me see if I can do it. I'm sort of hunching forward and I've got my arm across my entire midsection. And it's the putting the tendrils behind her ear. Um, And it's like, well, you know, yeah, well, obviously, you know. And she uses big words like that. Um, But yeah, I think that Anna was my favorite character uh, to play behind the scenes, for sure.
0: So for this scene where it's essentially... The basic plot information that needs to be communicated is that you're going to save Agent Buck. That's like the basic thing, which is some character, if this was the worst written thing in the world, it would just be someone going, we need to save Agent Buck. And everyone going, okay. And then you just move on to do it. So yeah. what are the conversations like about how, how, how are each of these people going to respond to this? Because what's interesting about the scene is essentially like you get a snapshot of sort of each of these characters based on their immediate reaction to the idea that we have to save this person. What are yeah. those conversations like?
2: well i love i love stats reaction which is just like very dryly like do we have to save him (laughs) like we hate him right um and uh i just that to me is like stat in a nutshell like she just sees the world differently like there is a world where we don't save this guy um (laughs) it's like that would actually be totally fine if he exploded um and I, I think that that just, like, encapsulates her attitude so perfectly. And also that she's, like, she's correct. Like, yeah. the agency does have a million more people like him. It's, like, more important that we don't get blown up. Um, because we're the only people like ourselves. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I love that (laughs) Twink uses an opportunity to make a joke about porn. Um, What I love about this conversation is the sort of like shorthand between Twink and Agent Mary um, about the studio um, Sean Cody, which is like a big porn, uh, big gay porn studio has been around forever. And I feel like every, you know, gay man has some relationship to it or some knowledge of it, but it seemed like a good example of something that every gay guy knows that probably most straight people don't know it's not a, like an easy name check
0: let's talk about that a little bit longer because I, I i sort of i did i didn't get it then i looked it up and i have like a sense of what the joke means but i will yeah. like i accept that i will never <laughs> like truly get what this like rep- represents deeply so shorthandedly with his these two characters are so like yeah of course that is kind of what it's like yeah what you know what's it like doing a joke where you're like well, people are just not going to get this. but and, and 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 not saying that's right or wrong, just like, clearly, like, you know, like you had Max Investor in the room. I don't know if he, I can imagine he's like, I don't know what that means. But, exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's like kind of what I like about it. Like, I've been a part of so many writers rooms where references go over my head, but I still like can tell from the rhythm that it's a joke and I kind of <laughs> laugh along and maybe I look it up later. Like you know, how many times have I like, you know, been pitching on a joke about like, you know, baseball stats or something that I truly (laughs) don't know anything about and don't give a fuck about, but it means something to the, to the intended audience. So that's, that's the job. It just felt like there's, it it becomes like it becomes the job of so many like um, subcultures to explain themselves Mm -hmm. to the bigger community like and it just it was just kind of part of my ethos for this where i was like let's just like not do that (laughs) like well who cares who cares like it's like you can tell it's a joke you can look it up if you want to um but also like maybe you're sitting next to a gay person who's laughing his ass off and um that's kind of more fun like there's I yeah, I just it felt really freeing to be like, can we just not be educational for five seconds? Like the obvious joke to me here as a gay writer is that the recruiter for the spy agency is Sean Cody, this porn, this uh porn studio that I know the exact aesthetic of. Um and it, it just was like, you know, that this is the same as saying, you know, they're all clones or they're yeah. all whatever, you know, but it's like it, it just felt so free. Um So yeah, that that's that's a joke that really meant a lot to me,
0: I guess. Yeah. I mean, like that as far as I I was like, Sean Cody sounds this is what I I was like, sounds like a white porn director. I'm assuming that is the aesthetic of
2: Yeah. And I and you know, like over the years, like Sean Cody has like a more diverse lineup of performers for sure, but it is like it is shorthand for like the all-American Jack. Like And, you know, the the boys on the lacrosse team are going to if they were gay porn stars, they'd be Sean Coney uh, performers. <laughs> so it's like it's that shorthand for like, yeah, like, who cares if this one fucking guy gets blown up? There's a hundred more like him in Washington, D.C. with the same body, same face, same personality. Yeah. Um. And yeah, just in those few words, you can say all of that.
0: So then the the other joke that's sort of really revealing about both Mary and Deb is. You know, Mary is trying to give a big speech about what queerness means, and Deb sort of interrupts him. Can you talk about what that means? How how did you get to that? What does it reflect about these these two people?
2: Well, I guess this is like a little bit back to that like queer entertainment. And this is not just queer entertainment, but this is like entertainment made by or for like a lot of subcultures, like need have have needed over over time to like explain their terminology and it i just wanted to create this moment where you think sean hayes is about to explain to a black lesbian the concept of what makes queerness special and you know the idea of chosen family as if he fucking wrote for pose (laughs) or whatever like it's not his speech to give so that was the sort of like i don't know kicking the ass i wanted to give that moment like that's what it that's I don't know that's what it felt like to me writing this show like am I really gonna stand here and be like what it feels like to be trans is this because mm-hmm. it's like not my story to tell it is several of the writers on the show's story to tell but like it just felt like we don't need to there are shows out there that are dead serious and there are shows out there that have real messages and are fully educational and are telling something new and that's not this show yeah and i didn't want it to be this show i wanted this to be the fucking wacko show um and so yeah it was just this sort of like way to undercut the tension of like are we about to get this speech that's going to make me roll my eyes so hard that my entire head falls off (laughs) or is wanda going to get to be funny and just like cut him off and call him a bitch and that's what i wanted
0: so I, I want to talk about this a little bit more, but I I, I want to bring up the teaser comes out of the show in June and has an, <laughs> an unexpected reaction. I imagine for you, but it's even looking back at it, you're like, this is a teaser for some show no one's heard of. People are yeah. caring about it a lot. Uh, maybe we'll play a clip of the teaser here, maybe not. Um, and I want to talk more about the bigger implications of and how the reaction to the teaser reflects a lot of what we're talking about. But first, can you just Talk walk me through what it felt like that day of like I'm putting out a teaser of the show that I worked out and then like this huge thing happens.
2: Yeah, it was a really big reaction. It really like surprised me. Um, You know, the stuff that people were saying, like made sense. Like I get I get what they're saying. I don't think it was like completely off base, uh, like critically. Um, But the magnitude of it really surprised me. (laughs) Um, You know, what's tricky is like that was like 15 seconds of the show and it was put together by a huge corporation and it was time to come out during Pride. And so it's just like all those ingredients are like, you know, a homemade bomb. You know, it's like it's not going to go great. Um, So. Like, I, you know, I, I was, I was girding, I was girding my mentions, like, as I hit send, I knew that some, you know, like, this is going to rub people, some people the wrong way, Mm. for sure. Um, But, you know, like, I think there's a couple of things going on, if I can be honest, like, I think, if there were, like, 9,000 queer shows out there, then maybe everyone would feel perfectly represented and it wouldn't be a fucking thing and people wouldn't care. But it is like this sort of scarcity where, you know, there's more queer shows now than there ever have been, but there's still not a ton, I guess. And so each one feels, I think, really loaded to certain um, parts of the community. And some people are just like really anxious about how the community is gonna come across. And I 100% get that. I also think that there's like a bit of a generational thing going on. Um, You know, like I think that people of all different ages and like have different, I don't know, like relationships with their identities and grew up in different climates where certain things are acceptable and certain things aren't. Mm. And I think like we showed our millennial ass a little bit in that, um, <laughs> in that <laughs> teaser um, where, you know, like for me, someone who's about to turn 40, like who came up in New York City as a stand-up comedian, like it felt really, really bold and really psycho and exciting and cool for me to talk about sex and asses and Mm. you know like that to me was like a real mission of mine if I was ever political in any way it was in that way to just like stand in a very straight space in a dive bar in the East Village surrounded by you know the John Mulaney's and and Eugene Merman's of the world and just be like the way I have sex makes me fucking fart (laughs) you know what I mean like and like why don't you just like Sit with that you know yeah. so but that's not what everyone's experiencing and so like i think that there's like everyone has different relationships with like sex and i think that that tri- teaser came across as like hypersexual to people and the word stereotype was thrown around a lot um yeah. in the reaction to it and um yeah you know like i was not trying to make something that was stereotypical like me and the team that worked on this show like we were trying to take elements of our queerness and our friends queerness and celebrate them and you know if the joke's on anyone it's on the bigots who are not like looking to hear that um so yeah you know like I just kind of took it in stride I read a lot of comments which I probably shouldn't have I, um, but you know, it seemed important to me. Like if this is the reaction, what are the words? And mm-hmm. I, and I get it, but yeah. I, I also just like, want to be really careful to say like, it's not the marketing people's fault. Like, I don't want to like throw my colleagues under the bus and be like, they fucked up and they made the show look bad. Cause it's not what I think. I think they were trying to like sell the show yeah. and you know, pride is fucking weird. <laughs> There's huge fights, every fucking pride. Um, and when you throw in a huge global corporation to the mix, it just gets weirder.
0: Yeah. I mean, a few things that you touch on, I think, are really interesting. One, which is I feel like I remember the, the a lot of the critique of Will and Grace, which is like Will and Grace is this important thing in terms of moving representation forward, was that like how de-sex, desexualized these characters were. Yeah. Right? It's like Jack is so fun and he's just like a punchline. And it's not that it's n- not that he's funny, so that he's like doesn't actually have any personal life. And in many ways, I imagine your stand-up and, and a lot of your colleagues, like we have to push back upon that. And like, and it's it's possible that for younger people, that is not a thing that they have. That's not representation that they feel the need to do because you and your colleagues have moved it forward already a little bit. So it's maybe not as true to them. I think the other thing, um, I think, is interesting the way you talk about it and why I wanted to bring it up because it 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 what happens is like a perfect storm of a thing that happens in comedy a lot, which. Um, there's a quote from this book called On the Real Side, which was, for those who aren't familiar, was written by Mel Watkins and it's the history of black comedy in America. Um, as a side note, uh, it's the best history of comedy ever written, uh, and you should read it if you haven't. <laughs> <Okay>. But <laughs> that's just a side note for our listeners. But so what the book captures, uh, to paraphrase, is sort of there's a conflict between satirizing social images and contributing to negative stereotypes in general. And I feel like that is kind of what's happening, which is like you guys are making fun of these images that are put put out there, and you're having fun with it, and you're you're destigmatizing it or you're decreasing the weight of it. However, to people who have a different comedic framework or or younger, whatever, they they just see it as this is the stereotype that you're doing. Like they don't see that you're doing. Like and this is the thing that happens yeah. over and over again.
2: Yeah. And I totally get that. And like, maybe it is like a, you know, you know, I, I have to ask myself, why am I mucking around in that? You know, like it's a totally valid question and I would never do it about, um, other people's identities, you know, like I have, you know, would never, um, be so bold as to like fuck around with stereotypes or, um, yeah, stereotypes about race or gender or these other things that I don't have like a personal relationship to. So I 100%, I I 100% hear that. Um, The comments that like broke my heart, (laughs) if I can like, if I can really just open up for a second is like, there were a lot of people who were like, great, now like my fucking tormentors have new shit to say to me, you know? Yeah. And I hate that, like that, feels bad you know i never wanted that you know my and intentions don't count for shit you know like it's public property now it's out there um but for whatever it's worth if it's worth anything slightly above shit it's that like i was trying to do the opposite i was trying to say like the shit your bullies are saying to you is wrong like the the shit they're making fun of you for is the best like yeah. and it's what makes you shine and like i love that femme part of you and like um you you know like not everyone's in a place where they're safe to express themselves fully um and i hope for a world where they are but like i wanted to give like an i wanted to give them peace and yeah. there were certain people who felt really attacked by it and i i get where they're coming from um but, yeah, I mean, to to go back to that, like, day, like, getting, <laughs> getting, like, several thousand, like, at replies in an hour about how you're fucking ruining people's lives um, feels like what you would think it feels like. It, it feels shitty. It's,
0: yeah, it's really hard. I mean, like, I think, so a lot of it centers around the character Twink. And, and, it's, and it's interesting. Partly, like, I know Matt. I know Matt's comedic voice. Like, I remember... I can't remember who it was, but there were some commenters like, oh, this guy's voice is so stereotypical, blah, blah. And then I know there was someone else who's like, that's kind of like what Matt talks like. Like, it's, it's little his voice. Head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's like having watched it, you know, like Twink is like a lot of the comedic driving force of the show. Like the jokes aren't on him. He's a very funny character. But I do, I imagine it's, it's just like the you know, it's a teaser of a small thing completely out of the context of like, I have all the context. I know literally every single person who wrote on the staff. I know their entire credit. I know their <laughs> point of view. So it's hard for me to be like, but that's, you know, but it's, 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 it's interesting because it felt like a lot of their critiques are literally the critique the show is also putting forward. Like, yeah. like, it's like, they're like, um, critiques about like, oh, the show is a commodifying queer culture or something like that and it's like oh no the show in many ways is like a, is critiquing the like it is you guys are on the same side they just have not watched the show yet and yeah. i I mean besides it being frustrating i do you know it's hard because like we're, we're talking before it comes out and i'm like i hope that every single person then watches it it's like oh we're actually all on the exact same page
2: that's my hope too like i i mean and and, and not in a like i told you so way but like i want peace you know like I think there are other like comedians and show creators out there who would like have gone, you know, who would have been like, I don't give a fuck what people say. I'm going to do my thing. And I'm just like, not that person. I am the opposite (laughs) of that person. Um, And it's like very, I really, really, really care what the audience thinks. I always have. Um, And so it's like, you know really and and I don't mean this and I told you so way but I want the show to come out and for people to realize exactly what you just said which is like we're on the same side of the yeah. argument um and you know the show wasn't created by cis het people like it and we're not the butt of the joke we're the ones making the jokes um but you know it either, that'll either happen or not yeah. um and you know I can't really control it like it's, you know, like we, you put your, you, you put your best intentions into it and then it's just not your property anymore.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's also the growing pains of things reaching, being able to reach more people is there. I mean, as a result, I think there'll be, I imagine there'll be people who identify with certain one of these characters or they see a character like Twink and be like, that's who I am in my, in my head, but I'm not allowed to be that way because I live whatever, like, this show can reach so many more people that when you're when all you guys were doing comedy in Brooklyn, LA, you can never reach. But the counterpoint is also people who never knew the word twink before now can say something is the twink. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard. And it's like there's no real right or answer. I think it's a matter of like because, as you mentioned, there's a scarcity. There does feel like and you don't realize that it's like, oh, this is a this becomes a. I don't know if the battleground is the right word, but this is another. This is a this is an example where every show about like a white dude moving to New York City, I'm not like that doesn't represent my experience. Like I truly would not even right. think to, to care. Um, and that's just sort of is I think, um, and I think that's partly what the show is is aware of that fact of like you know it's why it's called queer force. Like it's like it is aware yeah. that it's a show about it. It is like making fun of those things and having fun with those things. Um, the the other thing. Well, do you have any other things you want to say about th-
2: that general issue? No, no, I don't. I, I feel like I feel good. I mean, I feel like we've covered it, and yeah, yeah. I'm kind of. I'm just holding my breath a little bit.
0: <laughs> we we'll be right back for more Gabe Liebman. Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery podcast, Wiki Hole. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? Or what was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast WikiHole from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes in Wikipedia with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you'd learn that that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to, link to link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple Podcasts. back with gabe Lehman. so the other thing that this scene clearly indicates is this is a show with jokes like a lot of jokes everyone talks in jokes there's everyone's being funny all the time or most of the time and you've worked in you know big comedy shows if you reference crawl show and in inside amy schumer and brooklyn 99 broad city but he also worked on pen 15 which is sort of a its own version of doing comedy and then transparent which if we're not going to, this is not the place we're going to debate if that show was a comedy or not. (laughs) A lot of comedians worked on that show. Um, Besides like, well, this is the show we're going to make it this. What do you like about a show like this? That is like, this is a show where funny people are going to try to be as funny as possible. Like this is a comedy show, capital C we're doing jokes.
2: Okay. So I actually, I sold Q force while we were still making pen 15 season one. Mm -hmm. And so it w- really was this, like, you know, um, night and day <laughs> approach to comedy. Um, and uh, I I kind of like all of it. Like, I've had really valuable experiences getting to work in a million different genres, whether it's, like, absurdist, surrealist sketch, whether it's grounded sketch, or, mm. you know, a really straightforward workplace sitcom, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, or... I don't even know how to describe pen 15. You know what I mean? Like an art, you know, really truly an art art piece. Um, and I think it's like always just sort of like an exercise in like where, you know, where are you going to push for the jokes? And, um, you know, like just like a screen grab of pen 15 is so funny. You know, just like the comedy is just there yeah. in the casting, in the set, um, it's there. And then, so then you're like, well, also maybe the story's gonna be fucking sad um, <laughs> because <laughs> what about that? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, so when we, you know, when I, you know, started making Q-Force, it felt like, okay, it's animated, it's an action adventure show so to me that felt like we should have as many jokes as possible um because like i don't know how many like brilliant mysteries i have in me you know so <laughs> it was almost like a practical thing where it's like yeah, yeah i could probably do a twisty turny mystery that lasts i don't know 60 minutes and is like Not that smart if you pay too much attention to it. So maybe we cram it with jokes. Um, And it just seemed like, yeah, this really heightened, um, really, really weird heightened world um, where characters are doing stuff that doesn't fully make sense. And, you know, a real person couldn't exactly do. So with that as the backdrop, like let's cram it full of jokes. Um, And also, um, you know, working with Sean Hayes, like. I was, you know, kind of raised by Will and Grace. Like, I I know it's aged in a in a certain way, um, but like, I even have rewatched it um, several times, like the old the old run. And just like that, the that the show began and lives in in the world of Sean. Like, his performance as Jack is one of the funniest things I've ever seen, and like. Mm um so my you know like when i watch reruns of it um <laughs> my husband uh, makes fun of me but like when he lands a joke i like under my breath i say olympic level olympic level and he's like you say that every fucking time but it is like he is really the most precise mm. insanely studied performer to me and so i was like what am i i'm gonna do a dramedy with sean hayes what a fucking waste of time who's gonna watch an animated dramedy about a spy with sean hayes i don't want like you know i don't want to watch like him play don draper or whatever like i want him to be funny and i want to surround him with people who can keep up or or go faster
4: yeah yeah. you
2: know so um that it was really that
0: yeah um you speaking of other shows what did you learn from those specifically about being a boss and a creative driver of a show?
2: Um, I learned a lot from bosses that I've had who were successful or unsuccessful in certain ways. Like when I stepped into the like boss role on pen 15 and then again in Q force, like one of the biggest takeaways that I had from, Former bosses was like, the whole vibe is on your shoulders. Like, the morale and the vibe are all up to you. So, like, yes, you have a ton of work to do and a million decisions to make and really scary deadlines. But, like, if you're in a mood about it, or if you are so freaked out about it that you can't make decisions, then, like, your writers can't do anything. Like, there is not a worse feeling in the world than trying to like dig your fucking boss out of a hole or calm them down to the point where they can just choose from the three things that you've spent your like days and nights like crafting for them, you know? So like vibe vibe is one of the biggest things um, and morale and, you know, creating a space where everyone feels like they're in the mood to do good work because you're not gonna like get, funny jokes out of people who are fucking miserable. Yeah. Um, and then of course, you know, when we went into lockdown and stuff like that became pep talks (laughs) and it became like emotional check-ins and it became like really taking care of people. Like it just became just as important to me as like actually writing the show. I was like, you know, if it comes down to it, like I'll just fucking write the show myself at dawn. Um, B- before I will drag everyone else through my horrors. Yeah. Um. So that was that was a huge huge takeaway for me. Um. Just the sort of social aspects of like management. Yeah. They, w- you know,
0: I when I was thinking about being that, I was thinking uh, of being a boss and creating a, a room and facilitating people being funny. I was thinking about the sort of the the, the broader idea of creating spaces, and I want to talk a little bit about Big Terrific, which was a weekly comedy show. In Williamsburg, at a variety of venues that you hosted with Jenny Slade and Max Silvestri, uh, this was the show that I went to most often. Like, it is when I think of, like, the weekly comedy show that I think of it is as Victorific and Yay, a variety yeah. of its incarnations. Um, w- you know, what, what, what defined it for you? Like, you know, you talk about vibe, and I feel like vibe <laughs> is, like— a, a weird, a particularly important thing for your comedy? What, what defined Big Terrific? What what defined the vibe you're going for? And what do you feel like, how it informed the point of view you have even going forward in your comedic work that's not hosting that show?
2: Right. Like, I mean, I think if you were to ask, like, audience members, like, or potential audience members, like, what do you hate about stand-up comedy? It would be, like, when the comedian picks on me from the stage, you know, and like being called out or, um, you know, what a comic would call crowd work. Like, I think if you were to ask most people, like that's their fucking nightmare. And that's what keeps them from going to comedy shows. Like the idea that like suddenly it'll turn on them. So that was like this big rule (laughs) that we had amongst me and Jenny and Max was like, let's just never pick on the audience. Like, this is our show. We'll have the mic. It's not about like shutting down hecklers or doing, doing whatever, like let's just put on a show. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that was really important. And I think that that's what like kept people comfy um, to come and see what was probably like pretty edgy comedy at the time. Um, and uh, just knowing that we were never going to like turn the lights on them.
4: Mm-hmm. Um
2: and also like the fact that the three of us were and are still are very very close friends who like actually have a relationship with each other um i think that that's something that like kind of bled into the night like i think that was probably palpable how much we liked each other and we would sit like in in a in a spot off stage that was very visible and like laugh at each other's jokes um and you know give each other really warm like intros Um, and then for like the guest comics, there were like people that we admired and like actually liked, um, as opposed to like, who's the hottest thing right now. And I think that we gave a venue and like a lot of stage time to certain people who weren't getting a ton of stage time elsewhere, but because they had the right vibe. I mean, I hate to use that word again, but like, this is going to be a pleasant evening where you laugh your ass off and have a million beers. And it probably helps that we're not charging a dime at the door.
0: Yeah. The thing that, you know, not to reignite, reignite the sort of club versus alternative comedy wars of a decade ago that truly no one cares about anymore but me. But, <laughs> you know, I remember so distinctly at that time, like Bill Burr complaining, it's like comedy's too easy to do now. It's too, audiences are too inviting. You know, this, 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 it shouldn't be so easy. It shouldn't be a safe space. And like now that we s- now that we have time to see the effect of what happened to comedy as a result of it being too easy, is that comedy became a much more inviting place for other people who weren't normally doing comedy to do. Like yeah. it's undeniable to be like, oh, what if it is inviting to people who f- are afraid of being heckled? Like it's. Um, I don't know if you read my colleague Alex Young wrote a piece a few years about the new queens of comedy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of what we're talking about reminded me of a very specific quote that Guy Branham said to Alex for that piece. Guy also um, is a writer on your show. And the quote was, we're still used to comedy being a space where we're going to be attacked and feel weird. If you showed up to a random showcase you could assume that you would be told how disgusting F-slurs were on a regular basis. And he continues to say, and one of the the really interesting things is that the change in the tenor of stand-up in major American cities is so much a reflection of there being actual gay people getting up. Like I don't, I know it's weird to accept being influential. It's like an idea, but <laughs> especially working with Matt Rogers and Patty, Patty Harrison. And like, do you see like the seeds of what you hoped would happen grow out of what you created with that show?
2: I mean, I can't let myself see, like, take credit. I can't give myself any credit, really, for anything um, in life. But I, I am like, I am, uh, I am so like pleased with what I see, and mm. like of of every like new wave of um, talent that's coming up. And, um, you know, I think that like the olden days, (laughs) like there was just like a lot of like comics when I was coming up who were like, weren't happy that I was coming, you know what I mean? And like, that was really palpable. Like I felt a lot of people who I admired just like, we're not rooting for you, buddy. You know what I mean? (laughs) Was like a very defining vibe. Um, Yeah. And I, and I really like, didn't want to do that. You know what I mean? And like, so like, you know, I, when I first met John early, like he had just graduated from college and I was like, you're fucking funny. You're funny. Do Mm -hmm. it. You know what I mean? And like, it doesn't, it it doesn't cost me anything to get excited about like, what, who's next. And like, Um, it's actually really fun. um so I love what the comedy scene has become. I don't bemoan like uh front-facing camera videos like it's an art form. yeah clearly people there are certain people who are incredible at it, you know and then that's the funniest thing that they can do. and it's really, really fucking funny. So like yeah. I just like really make it like an exercise. but i also mean it but i'm also trying a little bit but i mean it would to just be like excited about what's next and like i don't close the door behind me like what's the point they're coming anyway so like i you know there's just like a lot of feelings a lot of vibes and a lot of like yeah sentiments that i got coming up you're gonna wear that on stage like i'm just not gonna like be that person and i never will be
0: yeah um, I want to talk a little bit more of your stand-up. You provided a, a recent joke of yours.
2: I would say that at this point, I could confidently say that I love my body the way I would love someone who's like in my family. <laughs> you know, like would change everything about it if I could. Absolutely going to talk shit about it every chance I get. But, you know, if it got sick or died, I'd be like, oh
0: no. So obviously this was pre-pandemic, but <laughs> h- how does it reflect where your stand-up was at and your where you're at with stand-up?
2: Um, so yeah, like... Um, that's from like a larger kind of longer piece. A lot of my standup is like long. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like the clippiest up in the world, which is probably why I like have one special and one album. Um, but it's like, I'm a kind of a slow writer and, um, you know, uh, standup is a real practice. So like, if you're not going out and doing like three shows a night, like you're not going to have a bunch of material, you know? And that, and that's like, and and it you know that makes sense yeah. um so my standup has slowed down a lot um and you know um as I've gotten more opportunities to write jokes for television shows and have a more sort of like stable existence as opposed to a touring existence it's what I've gravitated towards it feels more in line with like how I like to live mm. um and so you know it's like I'm still using these same muscles and still using my same social skills. It feels very similar to me, but yeah, television writing has sort of like taken over the majority of my brain space as opposed to stand up, which is, you know, to me um my original art form and I don't think anything I would ever even consider stop stopping doing whatever the right wording of that is. Um but uh yeah, it has slowed down considerably, and my stand-up writing has slowed down as a result, for sure.
0: I feel like you you always would write somewhat slow. Like, as a person who would go to Big Terrific a lot, I feel like part of what was fun was that, like, yes, you'd write slowly, but it was sort of like, because often Big Terrific was the main place you are performing, it was like, your your stand-up is such a reflection of those shows. Even when I was listening back to your album preparing for this, I'm like, this feels like being there. Like, I know the cadences. (laughs) And... it it, it's like it's hard to describe because it's like the terroir of your comedy but there is a feeling of like this is the pacing that that show felt i don't know yeah
2: and it's it it, i mean i love that i love that you just said terroir um (laughs) that (laughs) my heart is racing um (laughs) i yeah it's like I always wrote my stand-up really organically. It's there was a little bit of improv. it would be like a seed of improvisation would lead to like greater thoughts and then a lot of public workshopping. <laughs> um, and you know, it was very, very rare for me to like just write a joke in isolation, write it in a notebook, and then mm-hmm. try it out on stage. It just didn't like, it's not how my brain worked. Um so this latest you know, movement of standup, um, is it's like, I'll sort of like choose an aspect of about myself that I'm like, I'm ready to talk about this
4: now. Mm-hmm.
2: So like, whether it was my sexuality or, um, my place in the world socially, um, like the thing I was exploring from this clip, which was like right before the pandemic, um, was my body Um, and like I've always been fat my whole life and it was always something that I fucking hated about myself and I would work on and I've had like different you know stages of you know I've had I've been different weights but I've Mm. always been like a degree of fat at all times and you know it's sort of like haunted by that and tortured by that and done you know various degrees of insane things to try and like rid it from my life Um, but you know I think just like, you know, acceptance of queerness out in the world, like acceptance of fatness is something that is like um, happening and people are talking about their bodies and there's fat acceptance and there's body love and um, all these really crucial, wonderful life-saving movements out there socially right now. And I was like, why aren't I feeling it (laughs) about myself where I can love everyone else's body, but I still can't love my own. Um, so it was like that just seemed like this massive thing to try and take on um as a stand up joke. It seemed like I would get like a lot out of it. So I just like kind of dove in and the clippy plate is like basically the punchline um of that larger thing of you know, like I'm I'm making baby steps (laughs) towards like loving myself, but I still don't I love myself, you know, to this degree basically.
0: Um the yeah, the the pandemic obviously swayed this for a lot of people as a lot of people could not perform standup comedy but in general as you spend more and more time as a writer do you um do you worry about or do you consider do you wrestle with like uh, like are you a comedian is if you're writing full-time is that a, what a comedian does is you know like does that title mean something to you do you feel like you can be a comedian who just write shows and what does that mean you know this like is this the thing that you think about
2: I think about it so much that it's embarrassing (laughs) and like a thought I wish I could like chop out of my head, but won't go anywhere is like, there are so many like young comedy fans out there who have no idea that I'm a comedian Mm. and like, it's such a big part of how I see myself, but you know, to like the young people going to club coming and seeing, you know, the shows, that exists these days, like, they have no fucking idea who I am. Yeah, And that's so fair, because I've never set foot on that stage. <laughs> yeah. um, And I don't put out work. So like, how would they know, but that it, it plagues me a little bit, you know, like, I really do think of myself as a comic. um, And it is like a scary thought to, be like, I guess I'm not, Um, (laughs) but yeah. So like occasionally, like I dust it off. I make sure to like, you know, get to Largo and, you know, local venues here that clip you played was from Denver, like a little, you know, I Mm. like, I opened up for Jenny Slate on a couple of tour dates when I, when I had like the availability and um, you know uh, it felt good to flex that muscle again. And it's just weird. It is a really big part of like my self-identity, but I don't think it is a big part of my public identity anymore. And yeah. it, it doesn't, it feels weird.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of comedians are probably wondering, like, I don't know, like, because opportunity, now there's more opportunities than there were for the previous generation of stand-ups are like, all I can be is a stand-up. I can't imagine doing anything else. If I do a TV show, it has to feed into my stand-up. And now like, because of what we, we grew up in the 90s where like, Jerry Seinfeld did a TV show. He didn't do stand-up on the TV show, but everyone assumed, you know, like it was just built into yeah. his career. I do think we are moving towards a broader definition of what comedian means. Like, I don't know, like, I feel like there was a period where Nick Kroll was just acting and doing that show and wasn't doing stand-up as much, but people were like, well, he's not a comedian anymore. I think, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I can imagine while you're living your life, I'm like, I haven't done stand-up in three years. Does that still count? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this is a comedy show. You know, there's still jokes, you write jokes for a living. I'm
2: writing jokes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. the thing. And like, <laughs> I like I know like cuz I can feel my brain like I'm doing what I was always doing. Mm. And like the way you pitch jokes is you I mean, I'm performing for an audience of 10. You know what yeah. I mean? Um and it's like that's how you know when a joke lands is when you get an audience reaction. It's the same. It's the exact same. Um, but it's comfier. It's during the day, which is huge for me. (laughs) I'm not a night person. That was always my greatest struggle as a stand-up comic. Um, And yeah, writing for TV, like I can get up really early and I can go to a regular job that where the sun's up. And when the sun goes down, I can be comfy.
0: Mm -hmm. One of my favorite jokes of your jokes is, um, and I feel like it was a signature joke of um I can't remember the setup but the punchline was when Netflix realizes you're gay it's oh, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there is something of when I look back at that joke and the entire thing is Netflix recommending you shows that are movies and everything where it's straight characters interacting with each other and yes. the, there doesn't it's there's a certain amount of full circle-ness of, like, if Netflix now realized you're gay, it probably will recommend this show.
2: I mean, (laughs) that is so true. And, like, I do think about that joke actually a lot because, um, you know, the premise of it was, like, that they figure out that you're gay and they sort of cater to you in this really, like, kind of gray area way that it's it plays out in, like, the the made-up genres that kind of define the horizontal tiles um and uh you know um now (laughs) and now that i'm working with netflix on a you know um i I pay more attention to those tiles and everyone's little tiles are different so now like if i was still doing this joke like literally like the tile for me for the good place is just chibi with his shirt off and i guarantee you that's not your tile I bet yours is Eleanor making like a quirky face or you know what I mean? I'm going to look,
0: but that was a little bit of Yes,
2: please. And you can imagine my fucking thing for Lucifer, just nude (laughs) and male nudity. And it's, and it like, it, it has nothing to do with the show. And so now working with Netflix, I know that every show has like 20 tiles and it is like this, like insidious AI (laughs) that has you pegged a certain way.
0: Um, do you approve the tiles of your show? Like, is it a meeting that you're a part of, or is it ultimately? Um, a I mean, mysterious... they show
2: them to you, <laughs> but the <laughs> you know the implication is like this is fine, right? Um, because there's also just like yeah, there's like there's like twenty to thirty of them. So there was a couple where I was like, please don't use that. Basically, like there were you know maybe twenty versions, and I don't think like. There was like one, you know, like barely any of them had um stat or deb on yeah. them. And I'm like, "You know, <laughs> like <laughs> this is kind of how that happens, guys." Um so yeah, this, and they were This they were is really the quick. thing
0: that people are like, "There's only two white gay guys on this show." And they
2: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, there was like issues like that where I spoke up and they were very very receptive to it. Um um but yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: my good place is Kristen Bell going like a little quirky look and Ted Danson (laughs) looking very stern at her.
2: I fucking called it. I said it would be Eleanor giving a quirky look.
0: Yeah, it's not like my new girl is just two of the guys, two of the bros laughing at each other. This is like truly (laughs) embarrassing. Uh, But anyway, we talked about how complicated the burden of representation. Do you feel, does part of you also feel excited that like, oh, there's going to, the me of, 12 years ago, maybe couldn't tell this joke the same way, partly because you know, I'll be recommended this show that does adhere to like my idea of like what queer entertainment should look like.
2: I'm hopeful. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely like I imagine you know, like I do think about like 18-year-old stoned ass Gabe, who you know, um discovered uh Strangers with Candy you know, on VHS at Kim's video. Um, like I want him to find Q-Force and be like, whoa, you know, like feel represented, feel entertained. Um, yeah, I, I, I am hopeful for that. Um, I'm I'm so curious who's going to get served up Q-Force in their, in their <laughs> algorithm. I really, I honestly don't know. Is it going to be fans of Big Mouth because it's yeah. adult entertainment? Is it going to be... Yeah, I have no idea.
0: Yeah, I th- that's why I was like, "Oh, I think it'll be an extension of Big Mouth." It, it because Netflix is its own thing, I'm like, partly people are like, "Oh, this is like Big Mouth." Like it's like even though like the animation is completely different, they're just like Yeah. So now it's time for our final segment, which is called The Laughing Round. It's like a lightning round, but because this is a comedy show, I call it The Laughing Round. Love it. Great. Thank you. Um, do you have a joke from another comedian that you wish you could steal, that you wish that you saw that joke and go, I'm going to take it, but in your mind and you live a life where you have that joke, but everything else is exactly the same? <laughs> no one's going to accuse you of stealing. It's a different dimension. Everything's exactly the same, but this joke is your joke
2: really like Ali <laughs> Wong um mm-hmm. had has a, like a pretty like a longer kind of older joke um about um sex and um come coming out of her body after sex and it smelling like a turtle pond. And uh I remember seeing her tell that on the stage in Williamsburg when we were very young and stupid and being like, smells like a turtle pond. And I think about it all the time. Um, and I do wish that that was an observation that I made, but I didn't. She did. <laughs>
4: um,
2: oh, and also, can I also do an addition to my wish I could steal a joke? Sure. Yeah. This is a really old Joe Mandy joke and we still hang out a lot. And every time we hang out, I tell them how much I love this joke, but he's been in a relationship now for like, I don't probably like 15 years or more with the same person. Um, But he has a lot, he has a joke about the old MTV show uh, next where, you know, people would go on a date and uh, you could have a dollar for every minute you spent Mm -hmm. together um, or go on a second date. And uh, he has a joke about like, eventually asking his now wife, like you can, you know, are you ready to cash out now (laughs) and get, you know, $10 million (laughs) or would you like to continue watching me have a panic attack every day for the rest of your life? Um, and that's a joke that, um, absolutely kills me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, There's always sort of a gray area of these things, but is there a joke you wrote for another show that you're really proud of and you'd like to tell people that you wrote?
2: Something I really want to brag about that I am so proud of from the very, very early days of me being in a writer's room is I wrote the very iconic from Billy on the Street, For a Dollar, Name a Woman.
4: Wow. And
2: it's something that I'm so proud of. And like when I like think back on like the history of Billy on the street and the history of like comedy in my lifetime, I'm like, it might be one of the fucking funniest things coming out of Billy's mouth. Um, that is, that has ever happened on yeah. that show. And I'm so proud, but yeah, for a dollar name, a woman.
0: Um, do you have a short story of, uh, interaction with a legendary comedian living or dead?
2: Um, I talked a lot earlier about like bad vibes I got from older comics. Um, and (laughs) like there was one comic who gave me bad vibes in a really loving way. Like I could tell, like there was people who gave me bad vibes to haze me or to make Mm -hmm. me feel like I'm not a real comic And then there were people who gave me bad vibes. And that was their way of saying, I like you. Mm -hmm. Um, And like uh, a great example of that, where I felt actually very loved, but really called out and (laughs) really like set on my ass was um, I was opening for Todd Berry at Joe's Pub. And I was really nervous and I admired him so much. And he scared the fucking shit out of me. And I was walking out of the dressing room, like to the hallway, to the stage. And he was standing there and I was like, hey. And I was, I thought he was going to be like, have fun out there. And that, but he was like, you're wearing shorts. (laughs) And I just had like two more steps and then I was on stage and I was just like, God damn it. You know, but it also was like, it felt like a weird hug. Like, yeah. cause I was like, this is how this fucked up guy is saying good luck. And it's like, <laughs> I think about that moment a lot and it really like felt weirdly good. It was I like, love- you're in shorts. Though I
0: don't think I remember you wearing shorts a lot to perform, I do feel like anytime I—I I feel like you were the first comedian I remember see wearing shorts to perform. <laughs> and anytime I do see a comedian wearing shorts, I—you I, know—like again, you won't accept your influence, but I do think male comedians wearing shorts are do pay you a debt.
2: Okay, well that I'll take. <laughs> that you'll take. Um,
0: I've never heard anyone ask you about this, so, um, you famously end your tweets by saying send. Um, I think you also invented ending your tweets by saying something, which is something I do now, and I'm copying.
2: I was going to say, it was the original Love, Jesse. Yeah,
0: I I am copying you. It is not, if anyone asks, that is, I knew it was okay. Again, your influence, tremendous. (laughs) Um, What is the history of it? And also your history of being like, should I stop doing this? Do I need to keep on doing this? It's great that I'm doing it.
2: The history of it is like it is this intangible thing that makes me laugh every time. Like I, I've like tried many times to figure out why I think it's funny. I think it's like funny because it lends like a sense of importance to a tweet, which is an incredibly unimportant thing, and it send it lends it like because it's also all like uppercase. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, this urgency. Like, I need to get this thought out, even though it's the stupidest fucking thought in the world that no one needs to hear. Um, And it feels like screaming. Like, there's something about tweeting that does feel like standing, like, on the edge of a cliff and, like, just screaming your stupid thought about guacamole or whatever. Um, So there's, like, there's all of those things about it that make me laugh. Um, And I also think there was, like a weird like haiku-esque challenge to it back in the days when there was like a real character um limit on tweets Mm -hmm. where I was like I'm fitting like space send into every tweet like I'm doing less characters than everyone else I think that was like a weird kind of like ticky um you know, thrill I got out of it, but yeah, for all these reasons and more, it fucking makes me laugh every time. And I don't, I don't want to stop. I think like, I think people find it funny, but I also think people maybe look past it now, or maybe some people are annoyed by it by now, probably. Um, but yeah, it's just like, I've been doing it for so long. I, it would never occur to me to like, just not do it. I even did it on the, the like stupid, uh, you know, here's the trailer
4: for q you <laughs> <Yeah>. know? <laughs>
0: um this is not a question i wrote it down though and you know we don't have opportunities to talk that much my favorite parts of your favorite jokes that you have the joke which is the fantasy and my yes. favorite my two favorite things you maybe have ever done is one the way you say the fantasy and then when you say <laughs> um wood instead of woods
2: <laughs> oh my god on a silent wood yes <laughs> that's it
0: not a question that's just so funny. Oh, I, I,
2: I love that. What a detail. I, <laughs> but I—that is—that is how the. I mean, that's the genre. That's what they would say in that fucking book.
0: Um. All right. So last last one. Uh, do you have a joke that you thought was really really funny that uh, you told once or many times that didn't work, never worked, but you maybe will continue trying it, maybe you won't, but you'll go to your grave being like, "I was funny. Everyone has always been wrong."
2: There have been so many of these. Yeah. Um, God, what's a good example. It's oftentimes when I like try and be topical. Um, yeah, it's such a common experience for me. I'm like having trouble, like Mm -hmm. choosing one. Um, tried to do a lot of stuff about climate change and the drought in LA that really bums people out. I'm looking through some old set lists. I'm like, Ooh, that went really bad. Um, I had like a long kind of like run about, um, dressing comfy, um, and how that was like my new thing. Um, and parts of it, parts of it worked. Um, it got chopped down to basically being like a statement on why I like having a fanny pack. (laughs) But there was like a very protracted run in it about how I um carry like a handkerchief to dab my sweat. <laughs> um, because LA is really hot and I get really sweaty. Um and it, I think it got a little like uncomfortable for people <laughs> because okay, my Okay. The joke was like, I resisted carrying a handkerchief all the time because I thought Mm -hmm. it would like draw attention to the fact that I'm sweaty. But the fact is it actually like gets rid of the sweat. Um, But, you know, every time I went to buy a handkerchief, there was this like voice in my head that was basically you know i it was like the voice of my sweaty fat ancestors being like oh well look look at him he's got a handkerchief now cuz he's too good to be fucking hideous <laughs> like the rest of us oh look who's good all of, too good to be a fucking sweaty hideous pig like the rest of us were and <laughs> I probably did that for about two months longer than I should have. Um, it made people really upset um, and <laughs> but I just thought it was funny like the idea of like my dead ancestors looking at me dabbing my forehead like some gentleman when the rest yeah. of them had just like fucking sweated all over themselves um, and yeah them, them yeah, it's telling me from their grave that oh I think I'm too good to be hideous like them. I think it's very funny.
4: Bring well, it back. thank you.
2: I'm going to try <laughs> it again, back. I guess. Oh, look, it's too good. That part's in all caps. <laughs> <laughs>
0: look, it's too good. I think it's great. Um, th- thank you so much. This has uh, been
2: so much fun. Thank you for having me. This was an honor. I love you.
0: That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Q4 on Netflix. Follow Gabe on social media at Gabe Liebman. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. God did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show at Apple Podcasts, five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Support for this episode of Good One came from the Wondering Podcast Wiki Hole. WikiHole takes listeners on a wild journey through the most bizarre catacombs of everyone's favorite crowdsourced online encyclopedia. Listen to host Darcy Carden and her funniest comedian friends dive deep into the obscure, the absurd, and the curiously inane. There's truly something for everyone with a taste for oddly fascinating information. Whether you're interested in Crystal Pepsi, Lenny Kravitz, or how Carden's fear of dolphins connects to sets and hats. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda
0: just write itself?
1: Words appear, making this unexplainable case...
0: Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds.
1: Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now.
4: Canva.com, designed for work.